think those ideas make more sense when things are more stable. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But when things are in flux and always changing, yeah. the idea of safety is also relative. Yeah. Right? Completely. Completely. Sort of shifts. Yeah. It shifts. Yeah. Thank you, Ralph, for actually putting this time together and being here. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Partly because in the last 10 years of doing some of this work at the Conflictorium, one is never quite sure of how you're doing what you're doing and where it's taking you. You have some compass and you just kind of follow it and trust your instinct. Um, and I feel like every once in a while you want to step back and also hear and find peer and people who have been thinking through uh, very similar ideas in some senses, but maybe through a different context, maybe through a different method. Um, and so really I am looking at you at this moment to be able to gauge, um, maybe build and dismantle both some ideas I may have had about what it means to live with, within and without infrastructures. Right. Roughly. Right. Um, um, and maybe it might help for a lot of people who would be listening in um, for you to maybe speak about where did the instinct of beginning hyperallergic start, um, especially in the context of what was the landscape like back then and why was it important to do this? Oh, absolutely. Ah, such a big question. Um, you know, I often say I help create hyperallergic in order for me to function in the world. Um, so in that way, it's an infrastructure that's about not just sustaining, but actually allowing and watering, you know, something to grow and to happen and to exist. So um, the creation of it was as much a leap of faith within the, within the void a little bit understanding that that as much as we're trying to look back at models the models didn't exist for what we wanted exactly so it was as much about fumbling in the dark um, and realizing that the infrastructure we needed to create hadn't existed yet um, and couldn't exist because infrastructure depends on so many factors, including information. And there is such a tendency to recreate what we already know as a, as a cycle and patterns um, of behavior, but also culture, that that ritual of recreating is often seen as creation rather than perpetuation. So often with hyperallergic, particularly in the early years, there was a discomfort at not being able to understand what we were doing without trying to peg us as things that people already knew. And that was both um, invigorating because of the assumptions that I think are required in order for things to change. Sometimes you have to draw people's assumptions up. And so 
hyperallergic was able to do that in a way that penetrated people's daily lives rather than as a destination, as where one goes to change, right? Yeah. And, um, and our medium partly was social media as well as other sort of um, decentralized channels. And that we discovered was a much more um, effective way to really not just penetrate people's lives, but also jostle them so that the discomfort got them where they lived in a way. Um, so that, that was necessary. But then the surprising thing was how many people we realized quickly were not being served by the current infrastructure either. And what was surprising to me was for how long people were willing to perpetuate the idea that somehow the system was fairer than they really knew. And I think that's what the part that was surprising um, and was unpredictable in a way because it needed to have somebody come by and say, you know what, the system is not working, right? And then people are willing to admit it's not working once somebody else breaks the ice. And um, part of the reason I was excited about this conversation was that the topic of, of conflict or absence or, you know, it's, it's the part in our infrastructure we don't think of because it doesn't naturally, um, one cannot solve it, right? It's not a solvable idea. And in the same way, contemporary art or art in general is not solvable, do you know? So there's like a lack of solutions, which I think in the process of capitalism and particularly market capitalism, that's so much luxury art revolves around, um, there is this, right? And then to turn it on its head a little even more that I think I've only realized after a few years what I was doing a bit was the fact that because art is reliant on luxury commercialism, the notion of absence is actually structurally foundational but not in the way that you had termed it. There, it's insecurity. It's a system that manifests insecurity in the form of absence, which then structurally is hard to combat because it puts the burden on the individual rather than the system generating those emotions and feelings. Um, so when I was asked to bring an object, I brought uh, tissues because I think it's, it's that disposable infrastructure where even the placement of a box of tissues suggests that one can be valuable, one could be emotional, one could be many of these things. Um, and so much of what we document is often those things that have the possibility to disappear so quickly. Yeah. So when there was an Anna Mendieta retrospective at, at Dia Beacon in upstate New York, a number of um, feminist performance artists decided to go to cry 
as a performance. Crying doesn't leave a mark, right? Rather, you record it as an image, but even then, it's not emotionally, it's not the same. But that was probably one of the most effective responses I've ever seen to that body of work, um, ever. Do you know? And there is nothing that a text could tell me that I couldn't experience there. But at the same time, there's something, um, it was acknowledging a part of the work that could not be placed in the gallery. Yeah. Um, so creating Hyperallergic was as much about acknowledging those parts that were invisible, yeah. but also the parts that um, were inexplicable sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In the process of sometimes building these infrastructures, in fact, when you say you know that you didn't didn't know what it, what is it that you were doing, and then uh, when you look back, or at some point you realize, I resonate with that so much because it, there was no way to fall into a pre-existing category. That's right. Um, and yes, one may borrow the nomenclature of the museum. Right. Uh, which in some senses can be misleading. Right? It, one can treat it as a mislead. One can either treat it as misleading or one can say, no, this is the very category I want to inhabit. Right. And say, let's re-look at this category entirely like from scratch right um but in the process i don't know whether one ends up dismantling one kind of infrastructure Mm -hmm. and actually perpetuating another right in that kind of wanting to either enter the void Mm -hmm. build another gate keeping situation mean that that it can run the risk of that absolutely well i think the difference here is that um i see infrastructure of this type not as a as a centralized top-down infrastructure um i come from a community that we've been minorities for centuries if not millennia right and so it's as much about allowing the possibilities for alternatives Mm -hmm as it is about creating one to supplant. So it's not about supplanting one infrastructure fully for another. It's about creating the, the, allowing the delicacy and uh, creation of multiple channels. And I think that's where the difference, because I think we still think very much in a very modernist way of supplanting the idea of something following the other, right? And I think that linearity is part of the issue here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's because the idea of the linear suggests that we somehow leave the past behind, yeah. which I think yeah. is a very deadly, frankly, yeah. idea. Yeah. Because Absolutely. I don't think we leave the past behind by, by any yeah. means. So it's, it's the ability to exist without being assimilated. Mm-hmm. It's the ability yeah. to exist without feeling forced into a dialectic that one is not involved in or interested in, but it's also about being able to maintain your own network and, and sense of self 
outside of a structure that doesn't, isn't um, created for you. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, how? But my, then my automatic next question is, how do you do that? How, how do you hold on to that sense of self where everything else around you mm-hmm. is geared towards pulling you into the mainstream or assimilating you without your consent? That's an excellent question. Um, I think it has to come from, first of all, understanding that the perception of control is often more perception than reality. Um, not by which I mean states do not exercise control on individuals, but the um, notion of a state, the state being able to define you in every which way is not accurate. And I think the museum does something very similar by which it steals your history and then tries to repackage it in a way that suits the structures that the museum is a part of, right? Um, So notions like repatriation and decolonization is as much about questioning societal logics and imperial taxonomies rather than just um, as an individual practice. And I think this is the struggle we're having because the individual has been sort of celebrated so much and placed atop the pyramid, particularly in museums, so much where the individual genius, these notions that perpetuate, frankly, um, structural violence, that perpetuates structural violence um, to justify Mm -hmm. actions that we do not consent to Mm. through the use of mythologies in order to, and that's why your text spoke to me deeply, because I think you're recognizing that patterns, those patterns that then perpetuate, but not only just perpetuate, manipulate our own self-images and our own relationships to, to history. So when I first moved to New York, one of the biggest struggles I had was to maintain myself, because this is a society that wants to instrumentalize everything. Everything about you, your identity, your labor, your, your passions, your uh, love, your hate. I mean, everything becomes instrumentalized within boxes. The resistance to that is really um, something the, the infrastructure doesn't know how to deal with. Um, and the beauty of museums right now for me is allowing to hold that space. It's not filling that space, you know? And I think that's what's so beautiful about this is because to hold that space is a form of love. Do you know? To be able to say like, no, you don't have to decide. Do you know? You don't have to be there. So often when it comes coming back to hyperallergic, people will often say, well, I don't think I'd read that story anywhere else. And that tells me that's what we're doing our job in. Because particularly in media, one of the most deadly aspects now is perpetuating the same stories and the same stereotypes. Um, And, you know, one story may not change everyone's perception. 
but it forces people to confront why they perpetuate those stereotypes often. And that's uncomfortable. Um, and that's and because people want resolution. And that's the one thing about conflict that people don't seem to know what to do with yeah. when a conflict is not resolved. Yeah. And may never be resolved. Yeah. And people don't know how to hold that. Yeah. Because that, that also suggests that there are other things that are unknowable in our own lives. Yeah. Yeah, that this. So, can I ask you a question? Yes, please. When you, when you feel that absence, mm -hmm. how do you know it's there? Um, I think uh, the absence actually in, that, in this context is so loud. Is it, it really uh, presents itself as a spectacle, as spectacular absence um, that you cannot miss. That that. Uh, uh, and, and maybe absence occurs in two ways in that kind of context. One is, of course, when, when you know through a certain kind of structural violence, it has been designed to be absent. Mm -hmm. That spaces have been, or narratives have been designed to never be available. Right. Um, I'm probably saying it too lightly when I say never be available, have been erased right. willingly right. Uh, and continue to be. And uh, in a big way, this political moment in India, for example, is pretty much about attempting a new kind of erasure, mm -hmm. uh, which has the seeds from many years ago, but it's really been being pushed through. Now, uh, how, how do we, um, I think therefore then the question of visibility and invisibility becomes really, uh, really important to always be cluing into in which spectrum do, does one want to stand. And I sometimes remember from earlier times, these kind of phrases that used to be shared with us within the city of Ahmedabad, saying, oh, why are you in the old city? Nobody knows about you. Mm. Uh, or, or yeah, you've been running for 10 years. I just came here for the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of sense of discovery and then to say, but, oh, you're not visible. Right. right. So what does that mean that you got here 10 years later, someone got here? Uh, and to not be visible in the sense that uh, we know it as as much as say you know the the best coffee shop in the it, it doesn't work on the same planes either. Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel also very nervous in this navigation of how much visibility and how much invisibility. The shadows do allow for something right. to happen. Yeah. yeah.
I don't even know whether we may get it right always. Well, I hope we don't all the time. Yeah. Because I think I think failure is as much important. Right? Yeah. It's like I think even the pressure of not of getting it right is yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think I think that's absolutely that's absolutely a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, failures are so. I mean, you really like put your hand on love, um, but how do you deal with failures? How do you sit with them? Mm. You know, failures are best shared with those you trust. <laughs> <laughs> who can then help you um, dissect them yeah. to understand what failures are. Um, well, I mean, to also speak to your point of visibility, uh, I think there was thinking years ago that visibility would solve a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. And I think that was, I mean, clearly naive in yeah. retrospect. But it was the notion that people were unaware of something in order for it, for the reason for, the reason for them not doing something. Yeah. And I think we've discovered that that's not actually the case. Mm-hmm. Visibility doesn't actually guarantee response yeah. um, or empathy. Yeah. Um, and actually it might lead to things like surveillance and um, rejection and other things like that. So, you know, in some ways that was our failure as a society, you know, and I think even, even here in the U.S., we've often talked about, like, you know, police officers had cameras on their, on their bodies, and there would be less shootings, there would be, a, and we realized in retrospect that was ridiculous. Yeah. It was, it was an idealized notion that the world functions in a certain logical way, um, and I think this is, accepting failure is also accepting the that things can be irrational, mm. do you know, mm. and don't don't fit into categories that we'd like them to. Yeah. So sometimes I think that's the failure part. But then failure is also to suggest that that you know identities shift and our relationships to them shift, mm. and uh, our relationships to ideas shift. And sometimes they're failures that then become successes. Do you know? And even the, the nature of failure being malleable is such a dangerous idea for some people. Um, because then it also suggests that, that, um, that things don't fail. Do you know? Which is also something. And I think when we're talking about state logic... That is a very dangerous idea. Mm-hmm. Do you know that that things may not fail, mm-hmm. may not you know whether it's a rebellion, yeah. whether it's an act of resistance, um, uh, because that suggests that power is not stable, yeah. and I think that's the part uh, that can be really difficult for people. Um, to accept um, because it also suggests that the notion of jo- objectivity is is being deeply questioned yeah. um, and so in notions of that say conflict 
you know? How do you know conflict is over? Never is, no? When is it? When is it? I remember once I was traveling to Kashmir and uh, I was sitting with a couple of friends and it was a strange idea, right, to be in Kashmir, sitting with your journalist friends, saying that you run some space in Gujarat, which is probably politically on the opposite spectrum of Kashmir. They say, I run some place that's called the Conflictorium. And it's like a ha-ha-ha moment. Like, what do you know about conflict? Mm-hmm. Um, but also trying to, in that moment, say that, um, you know, what then gets visibilized as conflict when it's uh, armed and has visible violence attached to it. And there's this other kind in Gujarat, which is is brewing, which is probably doesn't have guns uh, on the streets, but it has this kind of insidious shaping of mindsets. Right. Like preparing an entire people for genocide. That's right. And that conversation went uh, in kind of, in some considerations of whether there must be a conflictorium in Kashmir. Um, And a friend of mine said, uh, we're not post-conflict yet. How can you, how can you think of this? You shut all these shutters, just put a label and that's, that's already a museum of conflict. That's right. Um, so, so, but that's so interesting because you use the term museum of conflict in that case. But it's interesting because in that case, museums often are reflecting, but then it becomes an active site yeah. of what that means. Yeah. yeah. So is that what the conflictorium is? An active site? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in, in some senses, one also realized that there is no way of putting on display what is at conflict? How do you do that? The, the, uh, meaning, do we have access to historical artifact the way we understand it in museums? No, we don't. But do we have access to historical being? Like, the being of uh, conflict historically? Yes, we do, because we have all these people who embody precisely that, um, who want to be heard, who want to talk. Um, uh, and so sometimes we have the most absurd experiences at the museum, and I don't, I, and I don't see absurd in, in from from attaching a value, but they're really absurd right. um, in the world where um, uh, the color of walls may become triggers, or um, they may, might become points of of observation for some people and say, but you have color X, Y, Z on your walls, but you don't have color Z. Why? Right. You're biased. Right. That's right. Now, if one imagine the walls as background, where some, they were acting as, you know, they were, they were foregrounding something else, but what, what audiences are responding to is, the wall itself. How does one accept this uh, question of bias? Right. Um, and 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 I'm I'm not sure whether I'm wanting to enter this conversation on bias through the question of objectivity. One never claimed objectivity. One can't. But um, one at least hoped in a situation like this, where the polarization is so heightened that one 
could one could even attempt to be a place where two opposite points of views could come into the same space because we've lost that space and then to handle this um, accusation that you may be biased what does that do to you not only us but to him the accusation of bias yeah you know it's an accusation we all get accused of um, in so many ways um, I think I think when it uh, the accusation is something that often works for most people. Um, I think particularly because there is the notion that objectivity, I mean, you say objectivity, but I think so much of our world still functions on the notion that objectivity is a norm. Mm. So as much as we intellectually know that, I don't think that that's actually how a lot of people function. Um, they function thinking that there is objectivity. I mean, even in the art world, we function that way. I mean, there's a reason why there is an academy, right? There's art history, and, and it's the notion of knowing something and proving it. Mm. Never mind that the records are already being influenced by empires and has already been edited for us to determine a certain narrative that we could never change, that, with the except with with few exceptions, let's say. So there. So it's, it's, it's a creative act, do you know? And I think that's the part where people don't see the creativity in this sort of notion of objectivity. And um, so bias for me is also someone acknowledging that there is something beyond their grasp, perhaps, that they don't understand. Or they may not be passionate about. Um, you know, some of the most quote-unquote objective observers are the most emotionally stunted, um, intellectually uncurious people. Um, and that terrifies me that those people would be given a soapbox as opposed to those who are directly impacted by an issue. And yes, people who are directly impacted could have a skewed image at times. But I would rather deal with the skewed image because it comes from a, uh, a, a situation that is, uh, they are responding to, that is real world and, and actual, rather than an imagined one that is reconstructed for the purposes of quote-unquote objective examination and scrutiny. So um, I don't think there is the same notion of shame around someone claiming bias um, than there used to be. I think before there used to be this very much this kind of like you're biased yeah. and that was, that was a dismissal. That was, yeah. I should not take you seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You're yeah. biased. And now the question is like, okay, I might be biased, but no one's, no, but we all know you're also biased. Mm -hmm. So let's put our biases on the table yeah. and understand, do you know, um, your ability 
to discern the situation is not superior to mine. Mm. And that is undermining to people in power. Yeah. That's where I think is a much more dangerous game yeah. that I think they don't want to play. Yeah. Because then it suggests that that the infrastructures built around their own notions of objectivity are just reinforcing their myth own mythology rather than the realities. Yeah. And we see that. I mean colonialism taught us that, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, we see it. We see it absolutely reinforced. Still dealing with it to this day, um, even in societies that are supposedly post-colonial or or have pa- have moved past those confines. Yeah, um, and you see they perpetuate because those those structures. The most insidiousness is not the state structure, but how it bleeds into personal lives. And that is the part that is going to take the longest. Mm-hmm. You know, I often say decolonization starts at home. Mm-hmm. And I literally mean that. Mm-hmm. The way we organize our private lives. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. And, and how we connect to each other. Even the languages we speak to each yeah. other. Look at us. What language are we speaking? Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's your first language, but it's not my first language. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting here communicating um, in the middle of New York City. <laughs> In English, um, and and this is a way of reproducing that same violence because it takes away the words that our own societies had to create in order to confront that violence, yeah. and we are now forced to use the language of oppression in order to then determine how we fit into the world um, and what and where those. And now also um, determining what bias is. Do you know? Um, but as we know, I mean, you know, I speak Armenian. It's like we have no he or she. Do you know? So when one makes a statement, it can often not be gendered in the yeah. same, quite same way. And that already is a worldview. Yeah. Do you know? And I think this conversation in and of itself, it's also our positions in the world here you know and even the way we've started the conversation sitting on the floor sitting on a pillow we're both clearly very comfortable sitting this way but that denotes a cultural framing that we're acknowledging in an unspoken way and that i've just acknowledged spoken (laughs) (laughs) you know so um the bias here is is I actually think in this case, the bias feels kind of, or whatever the bias might be in the room, I think is a way to connect. Mm-hmm. It's not like neither of us are pushing any of this away in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think with what you're saying, completely. I, I, do feel like um, because narrative and the dissemination and multiplication of narrative in our world, the way it's constructed, is so heavily influenced by capital uh, in what can be repeated many, many times and what becomes the canon to respond to. Um, that maybe in 
maybe in the context that I live in and operate from, um, it's still, this question of bias is still very much weaponized. It's still very much used, used as some kind of uh, threshold for legitimizing or illegitimizing positions. Um, and that when we are operating in, in an era marked by like fake, fake, fake news, right? you know, uh, uh, fake information. Now, it, it, it really feels like, how does one talk about the historical in an age like that, when history is, can be simply the figment of anybody's imagination and depending on your relationship or proximity to power, it may enter uh, an entire generation's textbooks. That's right. It's as malleable as that today. Um, it's true. But I would just mention the, the, the concern around fake news is really also the fact that elites are using it against each other. And I think that's why it's become more of a topic. I mean, I mentioned how, you know, as someone who's Armenian, who's the, you know, the grandchildren of genocide survivors, you know, we only received genocide recognition this year by the U.S. government after a century of activism. So that fake news is there and has been. And anyone who's Native American can tell you that. Anyone that's like, I mean, those, those, those things have been there. Yeah. So I don't think it's shifted. But I think the ability to weaponize them um, so openly is shocking to people. And this is more of a, of a um, how do I say this? I feel like this is more of a shame issue than a rational anything. I think when people's, when the reality of the world is shown to people, yeah. there's a sense of shame. Do you know? Yeah. Like they're I embarrassed. Do. Yes. They're embarrassed. They don't want it to be seen. Yeah. They don't, they don't want to function in a world that functions that way, mm. at least not openly. Mm. Yeah. That's why myths are so important. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. And I think this is where we are confronting this in a way that I don't think people were ready to do. Yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, anybody outside of, you know, a few big, Western states very well knows that any story reported about their country by the West is frankly caricaturized. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a caricature. Absolutely. You know, whether it's about poverty or violence or do you know any of those, they're caricatured. Yes. Um, so that's been propagated forever. Yeah. Nothing's changed. Yeah. I, I think the change is now it is being used on new people yeah. and new topics yeah. that were considered perhaps stable and, and like decided perhaps yeah. and now they don't feel decided anymore yeah um, and that's uncomfortable very very uncomfortable for people 
including for us. I mean, I think for me, I mean, there's part of it that's uncomfortable, but then at the same time, and this is the part that um, I wonder if you can connect to it. Somehow this flux makes it more comforting for me because it allows for possibilities in a way that we didn't even have 20 years ago. The narratives were much more pat and decided and stable. And now people are not accepting those stable, once stable narratives as fact anymore. So in some ways it allows some of us to really exist in all its auto peculiarities and and weirdnesses and and obsessions and passions, you know? Yeah. Absolutely, hundred uh, um, percent. That. Um, so then, should we be afraid for a new system? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Meaning the sunset is also a promise of the sunrise. That's right. Uh, um, it's uh, you know, it's really um, heartening to hear the word possibility uh, because. Um, you know, in this attempt to articulate what is it that one does, and especially when you move into, um, say, the West, mm-hmm. and this is a cycle one knows of, say, as art, cultural practitioners, organization, there's a set cycle, right, that has been marked out, that you practiced, uh, and then there's recognition, and then your suddenly focuses shift to other worlds, and then you're pushed to articulate why you do, how you do, and then you use specific kinds of language. And one is also, of course, trying to push back against that framework and scaffolding that's set out for us to mm-hmm. totally enter and fall on another basis. I mean, it's actually a trap to fail, like for that's failure. Right. That's right. Um, and uh, uh, the only thing I can keep repeating. He said, hopefully we are making some place for possibility. That's all, that's all one, that's all I can say with confidence. That maybe something can happen. I can't put my finger and say, I am sure by doing this for 15 years, the world will change this way. That's right. That's right. No, I mean, I think I, I agree with that. It's, it's. But the thing about possibility for it to exist, it's it's also about not um, trying to think of what, because it's such a difficult term, right? The notion for possibility, it's it's that I guess it doesn't get solved. Do you know that it doesn't? It isn't resolved. What does it mean to not resolve? that and that if what if everything is a possibility um, that is a beautiful idea in my opinion but I don't know if everyone could live in that world only because that need, needs for us to be much more certain in ourselves and I would love to think everyone is but in my experience, they're not. The majority of people are not certain. And I think these societal structures are essentially for those who are not certain in themselves to function in society, 
you know, in a way so that they are not in the spotlight, that they can exist without being highlighted or centered out or, or any kind of, um, of that. And I think what we're talking about is our comfort also in being certain in what we are, even if that means being uncertain, because that is our reality. So in that way, I do think a minority always makes change. I don't think a majority ever makes change. Yeah. I don't think that's possible. Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, the, the possibility of the museum is as much a, my, a possibility of creating a space for a minority of people to change things. Yeah. Do you know? In yeah. the exact same way. Like this conversation is going to impact both of us. The ripples of that are something we can never foresee, whatever that is. And I think that's one thing performance artists do so powerfully. Um, I often tell this story that I want to share here that I think is really important. Is during the early years of Occupy, it's a copy park. I noticed there was, this was within a week, I noticed there were a lot of performance artists there. And I thought that was truly odd. I recognize some of these performance artists. Mm -hmm. Why are they here? But then it occurred to me why they were there. Because performance artists, more than anyone, understand that making or creating an action in space has unintended ripple effects. Mm -hmm. You can't predict it. You'll never know. And look at Occupy. It had a global impact mm -hmm. because a number of people decided to occupy one park in Lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And I think it's similar. And I think it's, and I think that's the part that other people don't realize. For those of us who do some of this work, we don't have a predetermined idea of how the world should be. And that I think some people think is is ridiculous, you know. But I'm actually fine with that. I'm fine with us not knowing how the world should be, because I would never. I, I think we're done with our notions of. of consolidated utopias do you know this idea of like a utopia where we're all going to function so is i think it's a ridiculous idea i mean it's a beautiful idea but it's ridiculous practically at the end of the day because you realize people's utopias are built on the foundations of other people's utopias and i think that's one thing that we don't talk about my future is sometimes built on your future in the way that things are built. So that means that there is no future for you. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't mean we can both simultaneously have our futures together in the way that's structured now. That's not what this means. You know, land property is, 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 is divvied up, right? It's, I mean, this notion now, um, and it's a very active conversation, I think, that's happening. How can you and I be indigenous to the same place if we're not part of this exact same culture? Why can't that happen? Of course it can happen. That's how the world happens. You know, um, my family lived in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, you could be lit next door to someone of a different faith or culture, fully, you know, part of that community, and, and, and we can both function totally in the same world, in the same piece of land. But that, but people don't want to accept that that can be a possibility, right? What if we both don't own it? 
but we own it together. Yeah. Do you know? And I think these are these are ideas that that people have real trouble grappling with. And I think um, that's why conflict arises. It's the inability to to resolve intellectually and emotionally something that might be a fact, right? We both live in the same town. They're both part of our community. We both have this right to that community. That society says that we need to choose. You know? We don't need to choose. But we're forced to choose often. Whether it's with our passports or whether it's every time we travel, you know? Every time we, we choose who we love. I mean, these are all choices that end up determining so much of our lives. Yeah. Um, and can often really challenge those conventions. Um, Do you think there's a place for love within infrastructures? Absolutely. I think, I think that's what motivates us most of the time. You know? I think, I think love is so beautiful but I think the part and I think this is maybe what you, your project and, and you are getting at a little bit but that's just my opinion so I'm going to say that is um, part of love is hate and which means conflict is part of it and I don't think most people want to see hate as part of that continuum or anger as part of that continuum and that might be part of the problem, you know, because it's a very Hollywood or Bollywood notion of love, right? This is this, this very like magical thing, um, as opposed to the vo- a volatile thing. Do you know? Love is volatile. Yeah. Yeah. You know, art yeah. is volatile. Yeah. You know, like yeah. these are things are volatile. Yeah. Um, so we're often inviting people's relationships with their family into the room in a way that we can never know their relationships with their family. And I think that's where the notion for objectivity comes in, where people want to push that away. Do you know? Um, One of the biggest issues I have, like when people often say, to go back to hyperlogic a little, like, why didn't it happen before? What didn't exist? Why and honestly, 12 years in, I used to have different ideas of why it never happened. Now I realize it's because the emotional labor of the work we do is incredibly difficult and is unknowable by those outside of the process. Um, you know, no one prepares you for that. You don't go to college to learn about the emotional labor of dealing with trolls or people who send you death threats or people who make accusations against you. Like there is no way to actually emotionally do that without getting a degree in therapy or something. Um, There's no way to actually um, be able to hold that. And then also when it comes from people in your own community, it can be very confusing. And for a very long time, I thought it was a, a, a rejection. I don't see it as a rejection anymore. I see it 
actually very differently. I see it as an extension of love sometimes because really the opposite of love is apathy, right? And these are not apathetic people. They are engaging in perhaps the only way they were taught how to, which is through anger. Do you know? So people don't have the tools for conflict resolution. They just don't. Um, and frankly, they don't have the emotional stability or maturity to, to deal with conflict. Um, I didn't grow up in a family where conflict was shunned. Um, I guess I was a little naive thinking that other people were given tools for conflict. And I realized there were a lot of people who function at a very high level with no tools for conflict. So they often will then, and this is, I think, coming back to empire and notions of imperialism, then they impose on those who want to jostle or destabilize notions of being crazy, of being unstable, of being emotional, of these things that are there for as a way to dismiss again, right? And so what infrastructure is not there? The emotional infrastructure. Um, because it's not an important part of creating value in a luxury commercial industry. It's the opposite because it conflicts with emotional maturity, conflicts with insecurity that is required to create commercial luxury commercialism. Do you know? So, so it's not that they didn't create the infrastructure. I think the system has actually destroyed that infrastructure in a way. Do you know? Where, for instance, I'll give you an example, Renaissance Italian painting. Those were objects in, in places of worship often with a very clear goal, uh, very clear function in society that often had to do with emotional catharsis or um, different ideas of spirituality, afterlife, and all these. And it's been taken out of that context fully and I think it's amazing now that even the Uffizi in Florence are, is talking about returning altarpieces to churches because they see that these have been ripped out of an infrastructure that has turned them into pure commodities. Yeah. And that's the part where I think has, is only starting to be seen. Do you know? Um, so now with the restitution of works to Nepal, that has been a huge wave. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing to me how, like, we received a note, one of our writers who wrote about the restitution of the sculpture in Nepal literally received a note saying, thank you, your article made us see that it's possible to do this. And it's amazing to me that anyone needed permission, right? But that's actually what it felt like, right? People needed permission to be like, I can imagine this. And it's not just me and my friends in this little part of the world that is disconnected. It's like, no, we're not the only people. Um, so my question is, when they tore that infrastructure up, where did it go? <laughs> <laughs> So do you feel part of, do you feel conflictorium is part of an infrastructure? 
what I think for a long time we thought we were attempting to build some infrastructure, to build an infrastructure in order to point towards tearing something down somewhere, to dismantle an existing um, uh, economy of how, uh, how of course art and cultural objects are thought of as if they are only part of this kind of market economy. Yeah. But also whose work and whose voice can be heard because we also know that over 60, 70 years of, uh, say, this country having uh, been free from British colonial rule, it's not quite free from colonial rule. No. It, is, it, it has just replaced um, that, like an external colonialism with an internal colonialism. That's right. Which is... Uh, and and it's pushing us to also rethink what that colonial encounter actually was in the first place. Um, was it just an internal colonialism that was in, has been in place for 2,000 years that shook hands and and was very like very happy to meet external colon, colonizers who who perpetuated together, mm-hmm. and so one has existed, but the the main one who's the main player still exists and has borrowed right. some tools um, from That's right. the British. So the internal colonialism has only become more sophisticated. That's right. Well, because that infrastructure was created by destroying an established infrastructure. Yeah. So even if we're using the example of India, the elites often still go to British schools. Yeah, they do. So, so they're actually still part of the same a continuity yeah. rather than a break with yeah. the system yeah. do you know like why are not British schools then seen as negatives yeah they're but seen they're, as aspirational that's right yeah. and they're actually a scene uh, they're actually seen as necessary um, and we have that issue here with Ivy League schools mm-hmm. we have the same battle where people still pretend as if these are meritocracies even though statistically and factually, we see again and again, the research shows they are not meritocracies by any stretch of the imagination. And individual stories of people attaining in spite of the system does not justify a meritocracy. Do you know? Um, So I think that's that's exactly that. It's it's a continuity rather than a break. And... That's a difficult thing to, to deal with because it also is dealing with the, I mean, talk about the insecurity. It shows such a deep insecurity of a society to yeah. trust in its own history, yeah. research and its ability to reinvent yeah. something as foundational as education. Yeah. Do you know? It's, it's, it's you know, it, how many times, I mean, I, I, it's so, it's so, so common. You know, yeah. um, in the way in the way it sort of gets reproduced again and again. Yeah. Um, I mean, you even see it here like, in the U.S. Like, it always laugh. I always laugh that one of the most common second languages in those elite schools is, is French. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a quaint thing to think that French, 
is a global language one should be rushing to learn right now. Yeah. And Chinese, and so many other languages are, are such an integral part of yeah. the everyday now. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's still this kind of holding on to this older idea. But what is that idea? What are we holding on to? And, and how can we break that? I mean, I function in the New York art world. Sometimes I'm kind of amazed I function in the New York art world. But at the same time, the more I see, the more I realize that I think everyone feels that way in a certain degree. We are a society of people who nobody wants to accept. Everyone thinks they're an outsider. Especially in the contemporary. Everyone thinks they're an outsider. Even the most insider curator thinks they're avant-garde and ahead of the... F and I mean, what a joke. I mean, I mean, an absolute joke. They're courtiers to like super wealthy people yeah. and, they're, and they're pretending that they're somehow ahead of anything mm -hmm. other than their next paycheck. Do you know? Um, yeah, I like to think about that. Do you know? Yeah. How, how we can... Um, why, why do we perpetuate? Like, that's the other thing. What are we getting from perpetuating? Mm -hmm. What is it? Is it the, it's kind of like, you know, when you, you ever encountered someone in an abusive situation and the abuse can somehow feel comforting to them yeah. in the most demented way yeah. you can imagine. Yes. And I feel like we're doing this a lot. We have a number of people with Stockholm syndrome yeah. and you're the bad person to pointing out yeah. Yeah. when they're in the midst of something that's unhealthy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Maybe um, it helps to think about um, even um, even in generational shifts, uh, nothing happens to language. You know, no, no language changes. Uh, you imagine, like, within generational shifts, you see all kinds of external markers shifting, right? People's hairstyle change. Right. People use differently engineered machines. So the most sort of inconsequential things sometimes change when a generation right. changes. But this language of perpetuation doesn't change. Mostly. Though we are seeing now in English now with the introduction of there. Mm. instead of he or she mm. yeah. and yeah. the weird backlash yeah like Carol uh, uh, Joyce Carol Oates not well known writer is like saying well this is not you know this is, doesn't add specificity to language you know what <laughs> you know but it's, it's like but that resistance yeah. over something as inconsequential yeah as like okay well I still have the tool to denote gender, but I may choose not to denote mm. gender. Isn't that a way of expanding yeah. rather than retract, like yeah. retracting? Yeah. Um, so that's the part that, that even when it does shift mm. so small, mm. the backlash is so large yeah. and disproportionate. 
and, uh, and almost always comes from those in power mm-hmm. rather than the grassroots. Yeah, yeah. Of Do you course. know? Of course, yeah. That's where it's coming being, from. They're holding the... Being, I, it takes me back to what you were saying about insecurity. And the moment the status quo starts to shift, who is it that is going to be most insecure? Right. Who's, who's benefited from the status quo the most? Is trying to... We'll try and hold it together as is. That's right. And not let it shift. They police it. Um, yeah, and police it uh, diligently. Diligently, as if their lives depended on yeah. it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and while we have spoken about these infrastructures and what I, uh, I do want to maybe have a comment from you on, Pekosa. And it's such a basic question at one level, but I feel like what. How do we speak about art worlds mm. as infrastructures or as not or as inadequate infrastructures? Right. Well, I think art worlds are systems of possibility. So it's thinking of as an artist or as a creative individual you have an idea and a project you want to realize. It's about accessing which art world allows you to do that. I think that's how we should think of them, as tools rather than sites of function. So the art worlds are tools. Some of them lead to the commercial, some of them lead to the non-commercial, some of them lead to education, some of them lead to um, public infrastructures and about maintaining public space as an integral infrastructure in just the ability to dream. Do you know? So I think thinking them as tools is much more useful. Um, so the infrastructure then, these are tools to create individualized infrastructures. I'm not interested in imposing an infrastructure on everyone. I'm, impo- I'm interested in creating cities that people can function in. And I think this is the difference. So when we're creating plural art worlds, which frankly already exist, so I don't even think we're creating them from a new, I think what we're doing is we're shifting people's understanding. When I'm often talking to art students, the thing that still amazes me is for people who are taught to be as creative as possible, their understanding of the worlds they function in commercially or through work are still so limited and they're unable to expand them in the way they should. So to me, it's saying, okay, what's your project? Now, what infrastructure and what tool will you need to realize that project? Not how can you fit into the established infrastructure? And I think this is the part that people don't often want or say they want but don't. Because then that denotes taking responsibility. Do you know? So that if you're going to work with these tools, you have to take responsibility for the failures, for the things that do work, for the things that don't work, for your choice to be part of a system. People love to talk about the art world sort of like as if it's an inevitable. When you realize that you actually don't have to be part of that specific, perhaps luxury commercial art world, then the question is, why, do you, why are you part of it? And people don't want to answer that. Yeah. Do you know? Because then it puts the responsibility on you. 
yeah. as opposed to saying, well, this is the way it functions and this is how it works. No, actually, many of us function outside of that system. Yeah. I mean, look at us having this conversation yeah. here. Yeah. We're under the guise of a university, of an institution. We come from different parts of the world. We're having a conversation on the street in, a, in an exhibition space, watching a live feed halfway around the world. You know, these, this is not commercial. Yeah. We're not creating something to be spot and sold in the same way. Um, and we're sharing knowledge based on our own personal positionality and, and, and realities. Um, that can feel threatening. I really do believe that can feel very threatening to people. Um, because then it denotes, oh, okay. So then my decision to sell luxury art objects is my decision because I can be an artist without doing that. But I don't want to accept that because then it suggests that I actually might like this. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Is, it, is it? So it's nothing wrong with liking it, but then you'd have to take responsibility for it. Yeah. And we live in an age where no one wants the consequences of their actions or their decisions. Yeah. Do you know? And they don't want to own that. Um, as well as, I mean, we talk about conflict. We're always talking about victims of conflict. Why are we not talking more about perpetrators? Absolutely. Why, why, why are perpetrators so invisible yeah. in notion, in talks around conflict? Yeah. And when they are, they're vilified in a very specific way. Yeah. Rather than the fact that, you know, the banality of evil, it's not necessarily my favorite term because I think it sort of dismisses things yes. a little bit. But it's... it's similar yeah. where there is a part where it's sort of invisible yeah. you know yeah um so recently the tulsa race riots there was a big conversation at the anniversary 100 years after they had victims and ancestors of victims talk and i kept wondering where are the ancestors of perpetrators yeah because that's actually where as much of the healing has to happen yeah you know it's a form of poison. Yeah. If you don't remove the poison, yeah. then what? Yeah. We, we also try to do this within the auditorium and we say it in a slightly different way where we say that we cannot, as participant visitors, not examine ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if you're coming to the auditorium to see something else, it's not going to happen. Right. The only thing that you might be able to do when you leave from here is to be able to see yourself. Absolutely. Uh, and whatever whatever is necessary, whatever tools are necessary to help ourselves see ourselves better, and most likely uh, to see how we have been part of the perpetration mm -hmm. in what we are talking about. That's right. Uh, and it can get very emotional and very. Uh, uncomfortable but one has to start somewhere absolutely and the process is very vulnerable and we're not a society that rewards vulnerability yeah. unless it's to create something beautiful yeah. but sometimes vulnerability creates something ugly yeah. and, and people aren't ready to hold that yeah. 
No, I, I agree with that. I keep wondering what people must be thinking we're doing as they're walking by. Only <laughs> <laughs> if I could say that why have you joined this conversation? Right? right? They all seem yeah. to be standing when they're looking yeah. at they're looking at yeah. over there. Yeah. On that note, thank you for for just holding this space and time. It's um, it's really for me special that um, that I can see from I intended to see from a distance, but to realize that there cannot there isn't that distance that that there is something so there's so in, something so intimate and shared, even though we are in different yep. context, medium, space, realities, but there is something so shared what we may be attempting to do. I would agree with that. And I think what we're doing a little bit right now is it's a form of play. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Like I think I think this is what you do with people who you sense an affinity with. Yeah. But it's but I don't want to impose on you a structure. Yeah. And you don't want to impose on me. Yeah. And so we're kind of playing right now. Yeah. Which I think is 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 the way it feels. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's sort of we're playing with ideas. Yeah. We're playing with like where we are in the world. And how we connect with one another, one another, and so I think that that make, fills me with hope because I think that this is our sandbox. You know, we're sort of like literally just yeah. we're playing together, yes. and and we're creating sandcastles, and we're we, you know I've been very into this idea. It's sort of like we create sandcastles, and you know what? They're not supposed to exist forever. Yeah. Do you know? And they can be really beautiful, and the memory of them can can push us further. But we're so concerned about fixing things to, to stable notions of value and stable ideas that are unchanging that that's what robs us of the possibilities, you know? So I, 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 I very much love this experience of being able to play with you with these ideas. So thank you. Thanks.